Blog Talk Radio. men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score that would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight, we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats, football history and its memorabilia on the Gridiron Greats Publishing and Broadcasting Network, in conjunction with Swift Enterprises. We're live from the Wallingford, Connecticut home of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America that focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 140-plus years of football history and memorabilia, and you can find us on the web at Gridiron Greats Magazine. We're sponsored in part by MSB Sports Cards. Check out their website for one of the largest selections of football cards and football memorabilia at MSBSportsCards.com. And we're also sponsored in part by BST Auctions. Check out their upcoming fall auction. Some incredible, one-of-a-kind football memorabilia and card pieces. Check out their website and register today for their New auction, bstauctions.com. It is at this time I'd like to introduce my co-host, who is a senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine, a football memorabilia historian, specializing in pre-World War II items, in particular Red Grange, and also Seattle Seahawk items, in particular Steve Larger. He hails from Portland, Oregon. Mr. Joe Squires, Joe, welcome to the show this evening. <laughs> the dramatic pauses are getting better and better each week, Captain. I love it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. We are in fall. We are in the time frame where each weekend, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday yeah. night, we're seeing football literally 24-7. I'm starting yeah. off this season enjoying some local high school games and some good college games. Not overly thrilled with the NFL game. However, that's a topic for another <laughs> evening. However, there's something that has kind of been on my mind for quite a while. And you and I have talked about this, um, not in public, but privately. And we're going to talk about it tonight, and it's going to be our opening dialogue. And for those uh, regular listeners, you know, Joe and I banter about a current topic of a card set or whatever. But tonight we're going to we're going to do something a little differently. We're going to talk about, and we're going to give our opinions on how we feel the football memorabilia and the football card markets get impacted by literally the hundreds of auctions that are taking place during the year 
from many, many different avenues, many, many different sources, uh, many different auction houses, Ebays, Amazon, uh-huh. you name it, it is yep. there. And yep. I'm going to start off by just giving a few of my feelings, and I'm going to hand off to you, Joe. But I think, in my mind and in my opinion, and talking to some of the old-timers in the, in the hobby, I think there's an auction overload going on currently. And I think the auction overload is a combination of a couple of factors that some individuals may be buying pieces and then trying to re-auction them very, very quickly for whatever reason. A, some cases they need the cash that that purchase. Good point. Other cases point. they're trying to turn in a profit. Other cases, the item that they really wanted, they were probably sleep-deprived and they stayed up 14 hours straight to win the auction and then realized, regrettably, they made a, made a mistake. They may have bought a second item they thought they didn't have, but they found it, so on and so forth. And I, I was talking recently to a, a, a longtime collector, a reader of GG, and he he basically said to me, you know, Bob, I'm, I'm old school. I, I'm from the, the avenue. I, I go to shows. I like buying things at shows. I like going to the National. I like buying things at the National. But I am just mm-hmm. inundated, inundated, inundated with auction after auction after auction. And I don't even, I yeah. really don't even know where to, where to look or where to turn to. And, um, you know, he likes the concepts of like a BST auction that does a, you know, a football-only type of auction. Football and I like focus, that, too. Yeah. And we and we know several other you know we know Heritage does some football only and and several other larger auction houses do football only some football only auctions so on and so forth. So, sure. anyways, for, yeah. handing it off to you and throwing it out to you, you have any thoughts, any ideas of of what we're looking at tonight as far as an overload is concerned? Yeah, I, uh, I'll, you missed one there. Uh, Love of the Games. Uh, Chris Foley did a football oh, yes, only yes, yes, auction, yes. like I think, like four years ago, and he, I think, the auction ended or started around the Super Bowl. I can't remember when, but you know that was a very right, good offering right, as well. Right. Had a Nagurski in there. Um, my my apologies. Is this, is this, to Al and Love of the Game auction a good and great advertiser? I don't know. My mind went black and blank on that with my notes here. But yeah, Al has that right, football hey, only auction. Normally at the end of the season, they're beginning of uh, Super Bowl weeks. So go ahead, okay, Bob. I'm, 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 I know my role here is first comedy first, and then you know picking up, uh, you know, on the advertisers where you let go. <laughs> um, so a couple things, you know, I I notice it all. They, you know, they call it you know auction fatigue. You know, you you know things start happening in the fall. You, know, you get more and more auctions. Uh, and there's obviously there's some auction houses. You know, baseball baseball is and always will be the undisputed heavyweight when it comes to auctions. Uh, correct, correct. Their items garner more money. Uh, and I think it was Al who told me years ago, he, he, he found, you know, not scientifically, but football collectors tend to buy stuff and then hang on to it. Baseball collectors right. tend to buy stuff, and when they want something else, they sell something to make room, you know, to make, they make room for it. Uh, me, if I want something, I... Uh, you know, I, I I get the money together. You know, I go sell blood or whatever. It's uh, you know, it's you know, and I, I, that characterization kind of stunned me because he's spot on. 
I mean, I have stuff that's been in my collection for 10 years, and I don't plan on letting it go. So perhaps he's right. Football collectors hang on to more stuff. But, if you know, if you do a quick snapshot of the registry sets that are on PSA right now, you'll find, and I've, I've looked at this before, let's say there's 100 baseball sets. There's right. probably, you know, just, just using ratios here. If there's 100 baseball sets, there's 20 football, there's nine basketball, and there's three hockey. Baseball is over four times as many sets as the other three sports combined. Uh, right. So there, you know, if, if you're using that as a litmus to how much should be available from the other, from the other sports in relation to baseball in an auction, then that's your ratio right there. Uh, you know, that, you know, and then if you throw that in with football collectors tend to hoard their stuff more than they do rotate it through, then, you know, that, that makes sense. Uh, and well, let's, when let's, you look at let's how, look at, how let's, let's look at this scenario while you're on that with a, with a three to one ratio. And I've been told by other dealers and the like, it was like five, one, six, one, seven, one, pick a number. I mean, it's, it's, it's out of proportion. You know what I mean? So yeah. let's let's look at the scenario. Let's let's go back go back in time to the early days of eBay, when eBay was was truly an auction type of of uh, website, where you saw a lot yeah. of stuff that realistically you haven't seen. Literally, uh, when I first started going on eBay, I, I felt like I was at a at a sports memorabilia show on a daily basis <laughs> with yep. stuff I had not seen at shows. And again, I go back. You know, I, I started going to shows like some of these uh, early '80s when when really it was nothing. You know, shows were were really minimal. But you know, totally. you did find certain things, so on and so forth. So, if we evolved eBay from its beginning to where we are at today, where eBay is really not an auction type of website anymore, it's more of a of a store fixed price type of buy it now type Absolutely. of auction house. How has that impacted? Has that allowed the situation to occur today, where we got so many auction houses and so many different auctions going on to actually replace an eBay? Is that a, is that that's a, a great point? Series? No, without a doubt, that's that's plausible. I mean, uh, you know, you know, I, I've moved away from eBay selling stuff, and it, it just happens to coincide with, you know, uh, you know you know, PayPal and uh, people can file a claim against you months after they've received the item. Uh, I mean, you know, eBay is all about, you know, the, you know, the buyer protecting the buyer, not the seller. I mean, that's a lot of the proliferation of new auction houses. You see, I mean, as eBay fees start to rise, as more and more nefarious people are perusing eBay, looking to buy stuff and then ship back. I mean, I I heard a horror story from a seller, uh, you know, from a seller who somebody bought something from him said it wasn't as described they quote-unquote sent it back but they sent back something else like you know like they bought a raw card that was in you know right. mint shape and they sent back something that was crappy you know i mean now you have to videotape yourself opening up a box when somebody returns something just to prove because and then he you know he went to ebay and he said the guy didn't send me back my card and they're like well they got a delivery confirmation that's all we care about and the guy was out right you know he's out his money so i mean and has more and more, like I said, nefarious. Go ahead, Captain. It, it, it was interesting and, to me because I, I was very heavy on eBay roughly from 98 up to, yep. I want to say, maybe 2003. And then I and I, and I slowed right down. And now I, I took probably a three-year break from them. And now I'm back on in a very, very limited manner. 
But again, I agree with you. Listening to those horror stories, I'm fearful of really selling anything on eBay. Yeah. And what I sell is so minimal. Uh, you know, it's yep. really not worth my worth my time. But uh, you know, I'll just I'll just keep the stuff up there. And uh, to me, yep. it's more advertising than well, anything else. So. Well, and I'm, I'm blocked from selling on eBay because uh, I I don't I don't print shipping labels through PayPal. You know, yeah, eBay owns yeah. PayPal, so they they pushed everything to you know mandatory compelling people to use PayPal. So now, because I I might have sold you know, 20 things a year, it wasn't much. And I'd go in batches where I'd sell 10 things and then sit quiet for another. I didn't sell much. So I wasn't set up. So when eBay started compelling you to use, to enter in tracking numbers through PayPal or else they dinged you, I didn't do that because I'm, I'm the guy who sells something. And then I bring it into my office and I ask my, you know, my assistants to, to mail the stuff. Uh, right. I, I don't bother. Uh, so when they blocked me from selling on eBay once because they're like, no, you have to enter in your tracking information. I'm like, I, I'm too busy to enter in my tracking information. Uh, yeah. So I, I can no longer sell on eBay. So why why do I use an auction house? It's because of rules and policies that policies that eBay has enacted that block little little time sellers for me. So now when and I we, have stuff to sell, I turn to turn to an auction house. And we're we are confirming on a national podcast. Senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine, Joe Squires, off of eBay. Not allowed to sell because of the the ridiculous nature of their shipping rules of a tracking number, which to me is useless because stuff still gets lost and stuff still gets misdelivered. And I've had over, you know, over the past 30 years, numerous times tracking numbers say, Items have been delivered to my P.O. box, and they put it in the wrong P.O. box in, in, well, in Wallingford. And I am just fortunate that, you know, I know enough people in town. They say, well, you know, this is – I'm not Bob Swift. You know, we have 133, P.O. box 133, and I, I end up getting the item. But, you know, stuff like that's ridiculous. Wow. You know? Yeah. Unbelievable. But, I mean, they, they fixed – with me, they fixed the problem that wasn't – I mean, I – almost 4,000 positive feedback on eBay spanning 12 years. I'd never had something not get delivered, you know, no, you know, zero negatives. And they banned me from selling because I wasn't, you know, it's, it's like, all right, if, if, if I had some complaints for not, you know, getting stuff to the, you know, to the destination, I can see you fixing that. But, but back to the right, topic, right. you know, so I, che- I checked up on this prior to the show using those same ratios. You can see baseball is, you know, three to one or four to one. You know, for any of the you know for any of the other sports combined, and it's about five to one for football. So right. naturally, you're going to see more baseball than football. Uh, and you get some auctions. You know, you can sift by category, and you get some auctions where I can't remember the auction, but about a year ago, you know, football was lumped together with the other section. I mean. And, and other, you know, other in an auction is, you know, like the children's table at Thanksgiving. I mean, you're, you're there, you're eating the meal. It's, it's just, you know, you're missing out on the conversation. Uh, right. You know, right. when, you don't, when you don't have enough football inventory in your auction to sell, to even put it together with, I can see why, you know, why people struggle to have auctions that revolve around only football. You know, I, I think, I think mm-hmm. us football collectors hold on to our stuff tighter. You know, everybody's always looking for a deal. You know, there's less material. Maybe we're cheaper. I, I don't know. It's hard to put us all in one, you know, lump them well, together. You know, but just... look, at, look at what's on most 
hardcore football collector, a longtime football card collector's wantless. 35 shickles without a doubt. Um, yep. Mayo cup plugs without a doubt. Any type of pre-World War II oddball item, any shot, well, you know what, you know what everybody's looking for. So you see one, let's say we, we see one high number 35 trickle, a nice shaped coat go up to auction. Well, you got probably got 25 collectors trying to get it. Half of them are going to back out when they see the price starting to really escalate. Uh, then you, have, you end up with a bidding war for three or four of the, of the real, you know, deep-pocketed collectors who need that for their collection. And then the other 20 collectors are saying to themselves, you know, well, what's the good of trying to put this stuff together? I'm never going to put the high numbers together, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, then you have that cycle again. You see a whole bunch of low numbers come out, and you're still looking for those high numbers. So, it's, it's, it's you know, it's a very, very valid point you brought up is that football collectors will hold on to their items forever. And I've seen it. I continue to hear about it. And it's so true. It's, it's, it amazes me in a way. It really does. So, you know, that being said, I've, there, I've, I've heard from dealers. I've heard from dealers before that, you know, the majority of sales that happen in auction houses are bought by other dealers. So, I mean, dealers right. – you know, let's call it 50%, you know, of, of sales are other dealers who are buying stuff, you know, because they have a, they have, they know someone who wants to buy it. Uh, they think the price was low enough. They can, so, I mean, the, you know, the, the crappy dealers out there, the, the card doctors who see a card in a PSA five slab, we think they can get into a seven, we had a, you know, you know, as sad as it is, those people exist. But I mean, so if, you know, if, if there are dealers out there looking for deals, uh, and then you've got the you've got the moderate collectors and then the serious collectors and you're you're probably right. I, I would say that's probably the case with baseball where, you know, most auctions end up with, you know, you know, two to five people who are serious, you know, about bidding. I mean our our football hobby's small enough that when a, a very esoteric thing comes up, I probably know who the other couple bidders are who are who I'm bidding exactly. against because it's such a small, you know, communicated field. I was just going to you say know, that you, you know who you're going to bid. You're bidding up against on, on an item. You know who you're going to you know going to run up against, and you have a pretty good handle on who's got more money than somebody else to to win that item. You know, and it, it yeah. all goes. It all all fall back to how bad do you need it and how bad do you want it and what you're willing to pay for it type of thing. Which again yeah. leads me but, to believe take the take the price book and throw it out the window because it's 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 not a good guide anymore. You can't. You yeah. can't judge. You can't judge it in that manner, in any way, shape, or form. So, yeah. Uh, it's it's. But it's, I'll, I'll uh, go back it's, to you. Go ahead. Yeah. I'll, I'll go back. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'll go back to your original question: Is uh, does the football memorabilia market get impacted by the auctions that take place during the year? And my answer to that is no. I mean, bring it on. Uh, be, because football is, you know, twenty percent or you know one fifth, one sixth of generally an auction, uh, you know, I, I want to see more stuff. I, I, I want right. to see, you know, 400 football items, uh, you know, in a single auction. I, I, I want to see every single auction have a representation of football because the more the merrier. I mean, right. you know, if, if I take a typical option, auction, there's generally four or five things I'm interested in. If it's a football-only auction like a BST or, you know, love of the game, then there's going to be more things. Uh, right. And, if you know, right. if, if – if that auction runs a month with the preview and then the auction, and I see there's four or five things I want, 
I'm going to raise the cash or I'm going to sell something offline to, to generate the revenue. Uh, you know, right. so right. I don't know. It's an interesting – go ahead. No, I, I, love, I love auction time. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I did reach out to the BST boys and said, you know, hey, can a, you know, can a brother get a, a sneak peek? <laughs> yep. I don't know who replied. Yep. It was yep. their generic email. They said preview's mm-hmm. coming on Saturday. So we got about three days until we get a you know, peek behind the, you know, the curtain and witness the great and powerful Oz. So. Yeah, I think it's going to be a phenomenal auction. Well, we're, we're out of time with our little banter here, so we're going to move on to our guest because he's waiting. <laughs> our guest tonight is the head of the research library at NFL Films, and he's written several books, including Old Brother, An Old History of Early Pro Football in Ohio, 1920 to 1935, which was published in 2005. His second book, which was the Columbus Panhandles, a complete history of pro football toughest team, 1900 to 1922, was published in 2007. 2010, he wrote The Man Who Built the National Football League, Joe F. Carr, and he was on our show, believe it or not, in March of 2012, and we talked to him about Dutch Clark, the life of an NFL legend, and the birth of the Detroit Lions. 2014, he wrote A Nearly, a nearly Perfect Season, the inside story of the infamous 1984 San Francisco 49ers. He's a member of the Professional Football Researchers Association, and he's written many articles for them over the years. And I, Chris was a individual who wrote for my old Oxford's Football Time newsletter many, many years ago. I'd like to welcome to our show this evening noted author Chris Willis. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bob and Joe. I do remember the football uh, times. I, I still have them. You know, I think they're upstairs uh, in my attic, and uh, I have to pull those out and take a look at uh, those old articles. Don't ever throw those out. They're very rare, and they command a very high price on the memorabilia market, from what I've been There you told. go. <laughs> but not as high as Gridiron Great Issues number one and two. So, uh, But we, we, we're up there with our cult-like following that we had as football time was my response to being canned by Sports Collectors Digest in 1992 after writing for them for about three or four years when they underwent that big uh, change over there. And I said, you know, I like writing about this stuff. I'm just going to do it myself. And I did. And I've been doing it ever since for, I don't know, how many years now? Well, since 92. So it's over 25 years. So it's a long time. But in any event, Chris, let's let's start off. Tell us how you became a, a fan and a historian of early football history, and also give us some background on your position at NFL Films. Sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, most of my sort of passion for, for pro football history, or especially football history, I mean, uh, comes from um, my dad owned a used bookstore uh, in Ohio. So if you know, Ohio is a fertile ground for um, – you know, the, the history of the game. So, you know, growing up in that environment, sort of trying to read everything I could, um, sort of in the sports section. So uh, so that's how I sort of got into definitely reading about it and, and sort of learning about, you know, uh, the game and the history history of football. And, and then you start watching Ohio State and, and the, you know, the NFL. So, um, and that sort of led me to, uh, I thought I wanted to maybe go into coaching, you know, but uh, – that sort of led me to um, Ohio State in you know in grad school for sports history, 
Um, and then while there, I sort of uh, came to here in New Jersey um, to do an internship that uh, evolved into a full-time role, you know, running the research library here at NFL Films. So um, that's, that's sort of the background of, you know, how I got from Ohio and, you know, to, to NFL Films. Wow, that's incredible. And I, as I tell many people who um, I've told over the years about you, they said you have a dream job, which is just incredible, <laughs> uh, just just to be surrounded by that history, surrounded by that, uh, no you kidding. know, the, the, the word and the film of the game is just, it's just, it's mind-boggling to me. I mean, I, if, if that was me, I think I would just block at everything after, and I wouldn't be able to get anything done because I would just be looking at everything. And it's, it's truly amazing to say the least. Yeah. But I, I, remember, I do remember you uh, contacting you and, um, and you, you wrote several articles for Football Times, and you were in grad school at the time. So I said to myself, "This is good. I can I could get some interns in to help uh, write. They could get some, you know, get some uh, course credit or whatever, get their byline out, so on and so forth." And look at where it got you to NFL Films. No, it definitely I helped. I, I like I said, I, I never thought writing would be, you know. <laughs> part of it but you know like i said you know writing for a uh, coffin corner you know for the pfra and then writing for the right. football time you know sort of get that little bug so it was, so it was a yeah definitely good early experience yeah i mean and Chris, people, I, that's why that's why we we still try to this day we try to get a few interns with gridiron greats we've had several over the years uh mostly high school students who've written several articles if you remember in the uh burt jones um edition we had a gal yes. who uh, was a se- senior in high school, and she actually interviewed Bert Jones, and she said he was he was such a nice man, and Bert's a, Bert's a real class act, and uh, he, yeah. he had no problem answering the questions and interviewing. It was it was amazing, truly that amazing. Was, that was a really good article. Yeah, very well written. It was. It was. Hey, it was it, and I, I got a lot of we got a lot of compliments on it, and the, they really were impressed mm-hmm. that a, a high school uh, student wrote it. So it was good. Good situation, Chris. Your your pedigree obviously, uh, you know, precedes you. That, that it's impressive what you've done, you know, working for the, you know for NFL films and the books you've written. So, with all those books being written, I'm I'm curious when can uh, when can our readers expect a book focusing on uh, Seattle Seahawks legend Steve Largent? <laughs> no, it's it's an interesting uh, topic. I, I always encourage you know. Like I said, I, I talked to a lot of potential writers or, you know, people that would like to, to delve into the subject. And, you know, I always encourage them to, to grab a side, you know, because there is a big bulk of football history that hasn't been written about, you know, and, and it includes biographies, you know, and things like players like Steve. I mean, these are great players. These are not just like the obscure, the obscured, oh, wow, that guy, that, yeah, that guy played in the 30s and nobody knows who he is. You know, you're talking about, you know, you know, All like when I tap. Yeah, yeah. So somebody like Steve Larkin, here's a Hall of Famer that nobody's written about. So you know, unlike yep. baseball, and I know baseball, even golf and boxing, you know, there's there's more books on the shelves. You go to Barnes and Noble, you go on Amazon, you're going to see a lot more. And I get that, yep. but football still oh. is untapped. There's some parts of some great players. You're like, wow, nobody's written about. I mean, I always look at guys like. Yeah, like Don Hudson. Don, nobody's written anything about oh. Don Hudson. You know, I Don mean, he's, Hudson. He's, I would. It's, 
He's the greatest receiver until Jerry Rice, and there's not a solo biography on Don Hudson. So those are types of topics. Greatest greatest receiver until Steve Largent. Steve Largent broke Don Hudson's 100 touchdown Mm -hmm. uh, record. Mm -hmm. Then probably two years later, Jerry Rice shattered all records. But anyways, (laughs) no, I was kidding about Steve Largent. I would be remiss if I didn't get a Steve Largent joke in on every show. (laughs) Uh, You you, you have a Jim Jim Thorpe. You better get moving on his. Joe, you better get moving on his autobiography. He's probably waiting for you to, to write it, and uh, I can help you. Well, that, I can help you, and, and I can me, publish uh, chapters in GG for you too. So, uh, a lot of possibilities. Uh, due to the due to a restraining order, I'm not allowed to have contact with Steve Largent. Um, yeah, you're, you're, Chris, you're right. <laughs> you're writing a book on Jim Thorpe and the Oorang Indians, and Jim Thorpe between Jim Thorpe and Red Grange. Probably two of the players that I focus most of my collection on. I have great admiration for these guys. Uh, tell us about the book you have coming up on Thorpe. Yeah, um, it, it just came out in May. You know, uh, I mean, if, if, if you're familiar with a little bit of the team, you know, was it only played in two years? You know, 1922, 1923. Yep. Um, Jim Thorpe and the Orang Indians. Um, and there's been a little bit of written about, not I think as in depth as I liked with this book. Um, but also there's a lot about water lingo. You know, I think most people are familiar, especially if you're a football fan and some football historians, you know Jim Thorpe's story. But water lingo, the owner who really developed a team uh, to help uh-huh. sell, you know, Airedales, you know, because he owned a dog kennel in, in the small town in Ohio. So I uh-huh. I focused on him a lot more. Obviously, I cover Thorpe and you learn about him and, you know, but – but Water Lingo is also this other main character, you know, uh, is sort of why. And I asked that question early in the book is like, well, why did he do it? Because in 1922, his dog kennel was more popular than the NFL in professional football. You know, he was making m- more money. He was a- advertising a lot, you know. So why did he pick pro football in the NFL to sort of promote his business? And so uh, so focusing on his story and his background and and, and why he did it, and, and then obviously the two years that the team played, you know, it was a it was a, it was a sort of fun little story that I always thought I would like to tackle, and and I and I think it came out pretty good. Nice. Now, uh, wow, Chris. When, Chris, when, when do you that, think that's going to come when out? When did that book actually? Sorry. When did that book actually come out? Is it out? It, now it came out, it out. Yeah, yeah. It came out in May. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. Okay. So, so it's 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 on Amazon. It, it's on uh, Rowan Littlefield's my publisher. So it's on their website too. Uh, it's starting to make okay. the rounds. I mean, it came out a little earlier um, than I would have liked, um, but as we got closer to the football season, I always wanted it. To, most of my titles usually come out in the fall, so you, right. you definitely want it as the football season gets started and stuff. You know. So, but it, yeah, it's it's published. It's out there. You know. Um, you know, if, if to read. Right. Uh, Joe, Joe, I can ask you a question. Do you have any um, Orang Indian items in your collection? I don't remember. Uh, just a t- just a ticket stub or so. BST had those Orang Indian flyers that came out last year in an auction. Uh, I just I didn't feel they fit in my collection, so I didn't pick any up. You know, I'm I'm trying to focus on that stuff. You know, so okay. I, right. I I do, but it's it's along the ticket and program you know side. So. Yeah, because I was going to say, basically, what what you're going to find from that team is basically a, tic- a ticket stub or a program. Anything else that they, yeah. that's out there is exceptionally rare because they only they, they played so little. 
um, and you know how much was actually saved from that from that point. And yeah. um, you know, yeah. Chris, are you that's pretty Chris? Good. Are you a collector? Did Did you see uh, there were some Urang Indian auction items up last year? Are, are you a collector? Do you go after those kind of things? Well, I mean, it depends. I'm not a huge collector, um, but I do like to preserve history. So, so a lot of times, especially with the research projects, you know, even getting a copy of something, you know, helps with my research. I, just, I, I technically don't need the, the original, um, but there are a few things that, that I that I do collect that I come across. I did see those uh, postcards, and I think they had crates too. They had some of those original yeah. Uran crates. Yeah, those crate. are very unique, you wow. know, and stuff. So, the, those type of items definitely are not easy to find, or they're not readily available. So um, especially yeah, early pro football in the twenties, it's just it's, it's tough to find some of that stuff. As, you know, um, as you're but, uh, as you're doing research for a book, are you ever do you ever become aware of a collector who has maybe has some esoteric item that's related to, you know, to your subject, and you reach out to those collectors and get the permission to have a copy of it or anything? Sure, it, it just depends. You know, uh, uh, if I know of somebody that might have something that's helpful, you know. Um, uh, it, like I said, it just depends which project and what's going like, you know, like the Columbus Panhandle project. I did go and, and write to a lot of family members. Obviously, there's no member alive, but, you know, you, you maybe contact a family member if they just have something, even if it's just, a, you know, a photo or an art, a newspaper article, a clipping, you know, uh, that's not, you know, maybe at the Hall of Fame or, you know, in, in a library or something like that or not on microfilm. So, uh, so every once in a while you come across, you know, something that might be very helpful, yeah. you know, um, yeah. uh, within some of these projects. Well, Chris, when you Chris, go to write that large book, I'm your man. <laughs> Chris, I got I got a question for you. It's off our script, um, but I, I know you could probably answer this. How, when, when you're writing, are, are you on a strict schedule writing for your books, for example? Do you give yourself, let's say, four months to finish the book, start to finish? Do you put in X amount of hours per day writing? I, I'm curious about that because, uh, you know, being a writer but writing more, you know, articles than anything, I've, I've never written a book. I'm, I'm just curious as, as to what your schedule might be. I know what some other authors um, do as far as their schedule is concerned, but do you have a set set? That schedule, as far as that's concerned. Well, when I start, you know, the project, uh, I usually have that in mind. You know, uh, although it's not set in stone. Uh, usually, uh, my process has been: I usually start it on my own, and then that usually lasts, you know, somewhere between six months and a year, and then I present it to my publisher. You know. Uh, just because I want to be further along to tell them when I might be done. Now they're flexible, like you know. So if I, you know, if they like the proposal and they say yes, I don't want to say, oh yeah, now it's going to take me another year to do research and a year to write, and then you know they're okay right. with that. But I, I prefer to be a little bit further along when I present it, you know, because if they say no, then yeah, then I got to go somewhere else. But they've been really good with my projects. Uh, but that's just for me, you know. Like I said, I do like going in knowing, hey. It's going to take me this long to do the research. It's going to take me this long to write, and then this is when I turn it in. You have to turn it in roughly eight or nine months before it goes when it comes out. And like I mentioned earlier, that's usually a fall type of release, you know. Um, right. Uh, so, uh, so like with the Urang book, I was done, you know. Uh, let's see, uh, around Labor Day of last year, you know, just 
just after the season started last year, and then it, they, they were able to do it in about nine months, and it came out in May. So um, now if they need a little bit longer time, then, you know, it would have been closer to training camps and stuff. So, But I always, yes, when I go into a project, I usually start it first, get the research done, and then have a, got a sort of – schedule okay now i know when i can finish it then i give them a sort of a hardcore date hey i can finish it by labor day by you know january 1st or whatever and then they know when it can come that's out so that's interesting what's the what's the time frame from when they get your final piece your final uh book manuscript to them actually printing it and getting it produced to and then getting it out to the public i'm curious yeah. about that too well, usually, if I turn it in, they usually give you a, an eight to nine month schedule. You know, okay. um, right. now okay. depending on the length of it, I've always come in a little earlier. This was the first book that actually took nine months. You know, um, I mean, I still scratch my head. I was like, okay, it was one of my shorter books, and I'm like, uh, but they usually give you that time frame. You know, that it's going to be once you turn it in, then it'll take nine months. Usually, they come in under that, but. Um, because the big thing about it is they rather come in early than late. Because then if you come in late, right. mainly from the publisher, then you're chewing up more money, more time. So it, it, it shouldn't take more than nine months, um, but that's where they, they normally g- give you. Okay. All right. I was always curious about that because I, I know I know a couple of authors, not not football authors, but they're they're basically fiction writers, and they, they bang out a couple of books every year. And um, their process is once they start writing, they basically don't stop with it, you know, and they could probably get it done in a three, four month period. But again, fiction obviously is different writing than, uh, you know, a nonfiction type of piece where you're doing a lot of research with regards to one way or the other. Fiction is definitely a different animal. You can do it much quicker and it's more creative. You just sit down and you go. Right. Yeah, well, fiction to me is is much more difficult to write than than nonfiction. I, I've always felt that. And yeah. <laughs> again, especially when you're researching something, you got to make sure your your facts are correct. And especially something with early football history, as you well know, there's not that many avenues other than old newspapers and um, old magazines. And if there are any members of the family still alive, to contact them, so on and so forth. So. Um, that, that's that's pretty interesting one, one way or the other. Now, again, that kind of relates to the third question we were going to ask you, which you've given us some. Do you have anything else to add for background as to how you're developing your ideas for your books? We know what the process is, um, give or take that eight or nine months that you have once you present it to them. But um, what other ideas go into in developing your ideas for books? More so looking at subjects that have never been touched before or looking at something you're more interested in than something else? How how does that work for you? Uh, Well, for me, I guess um, I sort of go right down the middle with my book project. The first three books that I did were kind of ones that I wanted to do based on, you know, know, sort of where I grew up. You know, being from Ohio, I did the oral history book. Columbus Panhandles is my hometown. Columbus, Ohio's NFL team and pro team that nobody really, I mean, I get it. Everybody loves the Ohio State Buckeyes in Columbus, but we did have an NFL and pro team that was very good at times. So, and then Joe Carr was from Columbus, Ohio, and he was the, you know, first, he was second president, you know, after Thorpe in the NFL, and nobody had written a biography on him. 
So I knew I wanted to do those projects. And then the ones since have sort of uh, been ones that sort of just come to me. You know, like I didn't, like when Joe Carr was finished, I just happened to run into a Dutch Clark sort of research for whatever reason. And then I found out that his two sons were still alive. And I started started talking to them and they were like, yeah, we got, you know, we got these scrapbooks and we'll do interviews. And it just like, then I was like, okay, I'm going to, I want to write about Dutch Clark. (laughs) You know, it wasn't that I planned it out. Like I knew, you know, and then, you know, like the Niner book was, that's my, that's my favorite team. You know, I grew up with Joe Montana and Jerry Rice were my favorite players. Um, Although Rice did not play on the 84 team, but I wanted to interview guys from the team and I just wanted to do something different. I didn't want to, you know, although I love uh, going back to, I call them the Stone Age and sitting in microfilm rooms, but I, I wanted to do something a little bit different, which was to interview the players and the coaches and just sort of let them tell their story of this season. Wow. You know, so, um, and then the Urang was the same way. I, you know, years ago, I did a little bit of research and, you know, you know, tracked down uh, the, uh, you know, Waterlingo's son. And I was like, you know, I always thought I might go back to that story. So, um, so it just, it just, you know, like I said, sometimes cool. I, I think I know what I want to do, and then there's other times where something just might pop in and just, you know, and I think Dutch Clark's a perfect example. I had no desire really to write, not that I didn't like him, but once I started reading up on him and and, and uh, we actually had a few of his games here, and I because sh- some of these guys who you only read about, like in the newspapers, but when I right. saw the few games that he played and, and – saw how his feet moved and how he hit the hole and he always was going forward. And it it just like, wow, you know what? He was as good as the press clippings. And, you know, so, and I sort of like, you know what, now I want to write about him, you know? So, um, so it can come from different things. It's interesting. That book was probably my favorite book that you wrote, the Dutch Clark one for the simple reason. So little has been written about the Detroit lions, in my opinion, especially their early history. Um, there's just nothing there, you know what I mean? Unless you just you pick up the old programs or whatever, and you and you decipher the information for yourself. I always thought that book that you wrote on Dutch Park and the the Lions was just so informative to me. That was that was another book, you know. I picked it up and I didn't put it down until I finished it because it was fascinating to me. But again, being a you know a historian of the game, I enjoy that kind of information, especially learning about stuff that I. I really never knew knew occurred type of thing, and I think a lot of people feel that way when they're reading, you know, a book like that or your or your Joe Carr book or even or even the Panhandle book with regards to um, you know true early football history. So that you just love you, the cover. Way, I, I'm sorry. Said I loved oh, the cover on the Dutch Clark book. Just that handsome, rugged, you know, later on in his life kind of look. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, excellent. So, it's just truly, truly an excellent uh, piece, an excellent uh, story that you wrote there, and it's really, you know, well, well developed and really informative, which is what you know what I want out of a nonfiction book, especially on football history. You know. Yeah. So, Chris, you're obviously, like I said, you're you you have an impressive resume. You're surrounded by NFL history, uh, and, and you've written about NFL history. I have to ask, who, who, who are your favorite characters that you've uh, bumped into, you've read about, et cetera, while you're, you know, while you're involved in the hobby? I mean, I, and I guess that's a hard question to ask, you know, so let, let's say who's your modern, you know, you know, modern favorite 
player and or person involved in it, and who's your vintage favorite player or person involved in it? You talk about uh, in the collectible field? NFL. Or NFL. NFL. Uh, I would say, uh, I mean, uh, obviously, I think Joe Montana and Jerry Rice are my era, like when I was growing up and playing and all that stuff. But uh, the other guy I would have to say, um, although I did not see him play, is Johnny Unitas. I just just love, you know, I do like the 50s, although, you know, I think the 20s and 30s are my favorite era. That's why I like to write about it. But (laughs) the the 50s is another era. You know, like I said, I haven't sort of, you know, jumped into that era to write about it quite as much, but it is a great era. And Johnny Unites is probably the one guy, like I said, anything that, you know, any image or article or any collectible or cart, like, yeah, I tend to stop and take a look at it. Like, Ooh, you know, what's, what's, what's Johnny you doing there? You know, with the crew cut and the high tops can't beat that. Yeah. yeah you can almost break that up by era where it's like pre, you know, pre, you know, 45, 50, 50 to 70, 70, you know, you know, you know, it's almost unfair to ask that. It's like, who's the greatest quarterback of all time? You've got your Otto Grams, you've got your Johnny Hughes, your parts. I mean, it's by era. And it's, you know, it's un, unfair to say that Otto Graham wouldn't have survived in an NFL with, you know, with other teams, although he did hold his own. You know, could Johnny Unitas play nowadays? Would Tom Brady be able to take, you know, you know, uh, you know, linemen hitting him where they don't, they don't, you know, pander to, you know, yeah. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I've got my favorites by era, you know, Jim Thorpe, Red Grange, you know, ditto. Don Hudson is a, is one of those people that I want to know more about. It's a, it's, kind of it's, an, an, it's an incredible story too. If you really think about how how little is known about the 1920 and 1930s of, of NFL, whether, you know, you look at a PFRA that's trying to keep that story alive. You look at Gridiron Greats Magazine, we try to, you know, anything that we can pick up from that era, we try to publish at the same time. But it's an amazing story really to be told, and there's so much that still needs to be, can, can be written about it and learned about it. But, again, it's becoming more and more difficult as that, that, that whole generation now of looking at grandchildren and the like are passing um, you know, that oral history is, is pretty much lost. So it's, it's more research than anything else. So no, I, I totally agree. I, you know, that's the reason why I think I like tackling these topics. I mean, I mean, I love Joe Montana. I mean, I grew up watching him, but you know, outside of doing that one book, I was like, you know what? Everybody knows about him. You know, there's a lot, you can see him, yeah. all his highlights and, but some of these others, topics and you know and that's why we love the game so much it's like well these are the ones that started these are the pioneers and i think those stories get lost like i said even if a handful of people read about the orang indians and water lingo and jim thorpe i'm okay with that you know and they'll get to learn about it and hopefully future generations might pick it up and like oh this is what it was like and this is what this team was like and you know and you can yeah. definitely learn learn from some of these sort of stories that it, you know haven't been written about as much yeah, I uh, ran into Joe Montana. Go ahead, Gavin. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I ran into Joe Montana in an airport leaving Mexico in Cabo once, and uh, he was having trouble, you know, speaking to somebody to buy something. And uh, I, I, I stepped in and pretended to know Spanish way better than I than I actually do to interpret. <laughs> it, it didn't go very well. It didn't go very well. Did you snag an autograph uh, off him? Or? I did. I had him. I, I was dumb. I asked him for an autograph. He signed my boarding pass. 
and then I had to give my boarding pass up to get on the plane. Uh, yeah, I was a, a, a young autograph seeker, that's for sure. <laughs> well, so what's next, Chris? I mean, you're, you're surrounded by NFL legends. You, you've written some amazing books. I mean, other than the Steve Largent idea I gave you, which I expect royalties on, uh, you know, what's next? What's sitting on your desk? You well, I, I think you'll be excited, Joe, because this is going to be right up your alley since we've mentioned his name uh, a couple times. But uh, if you probably know in 2019 the NFL will be celebrating its 100th season. And wow. so this is an idea that I think I've been wanting to write about for a, a while. Is uh, So the first sort of big superstar uh, celebrity – uh, athlete was Red Grange, so I'm going to be writing a full-scale biography on the Galloping Ghost for that season. So, since history will be, oh, there are, since history will be a huge are, thing, uh, you know, so it'll be uh, about him. Cue the music, Captain. There, there are <laughs> tears coming up, welling up in my eyes right now, Chris. I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. That that's cool. If you, so, if yeah, you need I, any. Uh, any, any, if you need any early photos or early tickets or you know, etc., uh, give me a shout out. I'm very, I'm, I'm incredibly pleased. I'd be honored to contribute. Yeah, I'm still doing research, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, be, I'll be looking for anything, see what, see what can be helpful, and you know, so. But yeah, ah. so it's, it's, um, so that's next on the agenda. You gave wow. me goosebumps, sir. I love uh-huh. it. That's great. That's I, I, I envy you because you. You have a lot of energy, Chris, to continue to work on this, and uh, that's great. I, and it, it's well – it serves our football hobby and the history of the hobby and the history of the game very well to keep it and preserve it. And uh, you are a great spokesman for them and, and for our hobby. And uh, I, I know I appreciate it, and I enjoy your books. They're prominent in my football library. Quick question, though, and I'm going to put everybody on the spot, and I don't know how true this is or not. Does anyone have any idea how many books have been written on professional football? I'm talking all the leagues since the inception of the NFL. And I don't know how true this is or not. One-tenth of how many books have been written about baseball. (laughs) No, that's not a right answer. Now, there's a book that Ralph Hickok, I don't know if you know him, he, he did a bibliography. And he said yeah. he did a he did a search for football uh, on the uh, World Cat, which is the library center, and he got thirty nine thousand five hundred fifty four hits. So, wow! Wow! So, Can you be more uh, specific, Chris? But he said he brought the number down because he did the bibliography. He brought the number down to a manageable of ten thousand or so. So, in his bibliography, he's got wow. close to ten thousand. So, wow. The uh, the gentleman I was talking to, he estimated seven to eight thousand. Did he? Books. Okay. <laughs> and, and I and again I told him I think it would probably be more than that because there's a lot of stuff we don't even know about that's out there, um, yeah. you know, self-published books and things of that nature. And I know my football library here at home. I mean, I got probably close to five hundred books, if not more. But I have a lot of college. Oh wow! Too. So um, I, I again, it's wow. it's literally overwhelming and I always thought to myself, Well, I would really like to have a complete football library. You know, have you know, like like you would see in England, you know, a, a library room of thousands <laughs> of books there. But I'm saying to myself, what the heck could I do with seven thousand books is beyond belief. <laughs> and I, I I just couldn't handle it. 
but again, I still, if I see any older, any any old football book from the 20s or the 30s or the 40s, whether it's college, fiction, or professional, I do pick it up. So I probably got about 40, 50 books from those eras. And I just find it fascinating reading one way or the other. But uh, again, I, I, I knew there was, there's a large amount of books out there. Mm-hmm. Chris, we're almost out of out of time for you. Uh, I, I truly thank you for being on again. Uh, I look forward to uh, your work, and uh, I'm also looking forward to reading your uh, Jim Thorpe book, and it'll be reviewed in Great Iron Greats magazine also. And uh, it's it's very interesting to to actually hear the thoughts and the ideas coming from a yeah. writer. Uh, especially someone who writes as well as you do, and I, I, I thank you for being on the totally. show this evening. No, I thank you, Bob and Joe. Like I said, it's uh, always a pleasure to talk, and like I said, uh, talk about these type of subjects. Yeah, it's always up my alley. Yeah. So I appreciate the time, and you guys have always been supportive of my project. So, uh, so I appreciate you having me. Perfect. Thank Good. you so much for coming on, Chris. Thanks. Thank you, Chris Willis. All right, well-known author and. The uh, head of the research library at NFL Films, the dream job we think about, although I don't know what my dream job would probably be in the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame handling the memorabilia or the the publication area. That's the other question that was brought up by this gentleman, too. I was talking to him at at the National, and he came up, he just started talking. We were talking about the magazine, and he said, how many football programs, you know, are out there? And I said, well, you got to multiply them by... You know the amount of games that have been played. That's that's pretty much can be can be found. So I said, you know, there are you know literally hundreds of thousands of programs out there. If if you're going to have that type of collection, same thing with media guides. Same thing with uh, uh-huh. you know any type any type of you know football publication that you're looking at. So it's a, it's a it's an yep. interesting interesting view. I've always liked football books and. Uh, I know my library's grown yep. dramatically over the years, and uh, I, I truly enjoy it. It's like we talked sure, about we last you... week. How many, how many, how many games were played? How many programs were produced? How many programs got thrown away after the game? How many made it home? How many have been lost in fires and floods? I mean, you know, it's yeah, uh, yeah. Nobody knows. It's amazing. And you know, get, getting back to what we were talking about in auctions and on eBay, I picked up uh, over the past couple of months. And I'm, I'm just literally shocked at what I'm seeing on some prices. Um, I'm picking up a lot of 1940s, early 1950 Yale football programs for like five dollars, mm-hmm. and and I just don't get it. I don't understand why they're offering them that that inexpensively. Number one and number two, I, I don't you know. And again, I, I've gotten a few from what what I feel are are pretty normal dealers. Uh, you know, why the rush now to try to unload them at that price doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Not unless they, you know, got them for nothing or they, they picked them up for pennies type of thing. But to me, those are really beautifully produced programs. You know, nice artwork, good articles. Uh, there's a lot of meat to them as compared to the, you know, programs of today, which are pretty much more generic than anything else. So uh, I just don't get it sometimes. Don't understand. I've got uh, some old uh, Yale, Harvard, you know, ticket stubs that are from like you know 1894, you know, stuff like that. And, I mean, if I put those up for sale, they wouldn't get much. 
I mean, you know, so I, I don't sell them because it's like it's kind of cool to have a hundred, you know, oh, no. 20-year-old ticket, ticket from two powerhouses, perennial powerhouses of the time. You know, it's it's worth more just as kind of a cool memorabilia thing for me to have than it would for me to sell it. I mean, because the demand's just not there, like you mentioned. Yeah, it's it's amazing. That that brings up a real quick story. We're, we're running out of time here, but I had a local guy here in Wallingford. He called me out of the blue, and he, and, um, uh, he said to me, I understand, you know, you have the magazine, blah, 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 you know, about football, blah, blah, blah. I said, sure. So we ended up meeting at the local Dunkin' Donuts here over a cup of coffee, and he pulled out a bunch of Yale football stubs from the 1930s and the 1940s. And he said, um, I, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, um, you know a lot more about football than me. He says, I want to give these to you. And I said, well, let me let me pay you, you know, give you something for him. He said, no, buy my coffee and you can have the ticket snubs. So I, I kind of <laughs> laughed about it. I had a feeling the guy was, was kind of, um, he, he was more concerned about preserving what he had, and he didn't want to sell it, nor did he want me to turn around yeah. and say, I haven't. I wouldn't flip them on them yeah. in any way, shape, or form. You know, somebody gives me something; it's in my collection. I, I will not, will not sell it. So I think he was just happy. He went to a new home, and uh, it was going to be taken care of. But you know, when when you said that 1894 ticket stub, how many are in existence? I mean, why wouldn't you want to, you know, pick one up for your collection? That, that's what I don't understand. Totally. Sometimes, totally. you know, it, it's truly amazing to say the least. Well, we're on our two-minute warning. I think we picked up a, a lot on tonight, Joe. You go first. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I feel lazy. You know, Chris has written so many books. I, I have a hard time cranking out two or three good on great articles a year. I just uh, suddenly <laughs> I felt lazy listening to him. Well, it's, it's you know? like I said, it's truly a, truly a discipline to do what he does or any author yeah. to do that with regards to, you know, being able to basically come out with a new book every two years and have a book yeah. of substance, not just, not just write something for the sake of writing it, but just have something that uh, yeah. that's really is impressive. And again, I, I go back to that Dutch Clark book. I, I reread it before while well, I knew uh, he was coming on to the show this past week. And again, it was another deal. I, I reread it and it was one night I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm reading it and I didn't put it down. I read, I read it a second time straight through. It's still a great book. Yeah. And, yeah, it and was interesting to hear his writing style. Yeah. It, it was interesting to hear his writing style because when I tend to pick a subject, I will create like a, you know, like here's how I want the story to go, an introduction with some sort of, you know, wit and banter, something funny. Give me a, you yeah. know, a story and then dig into it and then end it with, you know, some sort of, you know, chapter story, you know. I build how I want the paragraph graphs and then move them around how as I see fit. It's yeah, I write, I write different. My my wife has a journalism degree, so she makes fun of how I write, how I put stories together. Mm-hmm. It's 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 very interesting how how authors write. All right, we're gonna wrap it up down to thirty seconds. Again, we're sponsored by MSP Sports Cards. Check out their website msbsportscards.com, and check out the fall auction for BSC Auctions bscauctions.com. We're going to be back at the end of October with a couple of shows. Uh, We're working on guests right now. First half of October, we're not going to be around. So uh, we will probably talk to you and be back on the air in about three weeks for our next show. Joe, good talking, and uh, we will be back 
in uh, in three weeks and then November you're going on a big trip and we're going to be talking about yes, that in October. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in a few weeks. Until then. Ba-ba-ba-ba-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-